And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. According to a new poll, 100% of people identifying as Pope in Vatican City do not believe in Catholicism. And that's probably the reason why you are listening to this program now. Welcome, listeners everywhere. It is finally time for another Tratcast the traditional Roman Catholic podcast that is judgmental, bigoted, exclusionary, triumphalist, and everything else the Jesuit apostate in Rome doesn't like. And we're pertinacious about it, too. This is episode number 25, and we're ready to start. Ladies and gentlemen, did you know that Jorge Bergoglio, whom some call Pope Francis, is not a liberal or a heretic, that he is actually an orthodox conservative Catholic? Yeah, well, at least that's what we're told on the History and Apologetics blog of Dan Markham. There's a post entitled 24-plus anti-liberal statements by Pope Francis. And the idea there is to prove that Francis is orthodox by showing various quotes of his supporting a total of 24 orthodox theses. So, for example, point number two says, he is strong on no salvation outside the church. And then Markham lists four things Francis has said that lend support to that doctrine. Now, of course, we all know that if there's one thing Francis doesn't believe in, it's no salvation outside the church. Uh, So, what's going on here? Well, quite simply, Francis is a modernist trying to destroy any remnants of Catholicism in people's minds, and he does it using the tried-and-true modernist playbook. For every 50 heretical or erroneous things you say, also say three orthodox things. And so, what Markham has done is simply pulled out the few orthodox things he said on occasion and cataloged them all into a single post, saying, ha-ha, look here, look at how orthodox Francis is. Well, the problem is that while Markham is giving you Francis' 24 orthodox statements, he isn't quoting all 24,000 heretical things Francis has said. So, that's like taking a bank account statement and pointing to all the credits and bragging about how much money you're taking in, while at the same time not showing anyone all the debits that are hitting your account and putting you seriously into the red. 
So Markham's 24 anti-liberal statements prove nothing except that Francis talks out of both sides of his mouth. Yes, you can find a statement by him saying that, whatever, we have to be faithful to the deposit of faith, to the doctrines handed down from apostolic times. Yes, you can find him saying somewhere that we ought to bring people to Christ so they can be saved. Yes, you can find him mentioning hell and the danger of people going there. It's just that you have to look very long and very hard, and that countless other things he said and done either outright contradict, deny, or relativize those words, or at the very least outweigh them by sheer quantity. And this tactic is not even new. It's quite common among modernists and part of their strategy of subverting the church from within. They spread their poison by acting and speaking in such a way that everyone will take heresy from them, while they themselves retain a modicum of plausible deniability should someone claim they're heretics. And one way to do that is to contradict oneself on occasion, tell different people different things, perhaps depending on who one is talking to. It was Pope Pius VI who pointed that out in 1794, when he condemned the local synod that had been held in the Italian city of Pistoia a few years earlier. That synod, by the way, was a kind of theological precursor of Vatican II. In any case, here's what Pius VI wrote. Quote, In order not to shock the ears of Catholics, the innovators sought to hide the subtleties of their tortuous maneuvers by the use of seemingly innocuous words, such as would allow them to insinuate error into souls in the most gentle manner. Once the truth had been compromised, they could, by means of slight changes or additions and phraseology, distort the confession of the faith that is necessary for our salvation, and lead the faithful by subtle errors to their eternal damnation. This manner of dissimulating and lying is vicious, regardless of the circumstances under which it is used. For very good reasons, it can never be tolerated in a synod of which the principal glory consists above all in teaching the truth with clarity and excluding all danger of error. Moreover, if all this is sinful, it cannot be excused in the way that one sees it being done, under the erroneous pretext that the seemingly shocking affirmations in one place are further developed along orthodox lines in other places and even in yet other places corrected, as if allowing for the possibility of either affirming or denying the statement or of leaving it up to the personal inclinations of the individual. Such has always been the fraudulent and daring method used by innovators to establish error. It allows for both the possibility of promoting error and of excusing it. It is as if the innovators pretended that they always intended to present the alternative passages, especially to those of simple faith, who eventually come to know only some part of the conclusions of such discussions, which are published in the common language for everyone's use. Or again, as if the same faithful had the ability on examining such documents to judge such matters for themselves, without getting confused and avoiding all risk of error. 
It is a most reprehensible technique for the insinuation of doctrinal errors and one condemned long ago by our predecessor St. Celestine, who found it used in the writings of Nestorius, Bishop of Constantinople, and which he exposed in order to condemn it with the greatest possible severity. Once these texts were examined carefully, the impostor was exposed and confounded, for he expressed himself in a plethora of words, mixing true things with others that were obscure, mixing at times one with the other in such a way that he was also able to confess those things which were denied, while at the same time possessing a basis for denying those very sentences which he confessed. In order to expose such snares, something which becomes necessary with a certain frequency in every century, no other method is required than the following. Whenever it becomes necessary to expose statements that disguise some suspected error or danger under the veil of ambiguity, one must denounce the perverse meaning under which the error opposed to Catholic truth is camouflaged. Unquote. Bam! Bam! That was Pope Pius VI uh, in the Apostolic Constitution Auctorum Fide. And we have that text linked for you, as we always do, in the show notes for this episode at tradcast.org. Simply look for the link to Tradcast 25. Now, I can give you a very beautiful example of Francis advancing contradictory ideas. You see, Markham's post of Francis' 24 anti-liberal statements is a bit dated. It was published in 2015, and as you know, the Bregolian tongue has moved a lot since then. Point 21 in Markham's post says that Francis is opposed to communion for the divorced and remarried. As evidence for that, Francis is quoted from his very first in-flight press conference aboard Airhead One, during his return flight from World Youth Day in Rio de Janeiro, where he said this, quote, About the problem of communion to those persons in a second union, that the divorced might participate in communion, there is no problem. When they are in a second union, they can't. I believe that it is necessary to keep this within the entirety of pastoral care of marriage, unquote. Yeah, that didn't age well, did it? We all know, of course, what Francis says about that issue now, since in 2016 he released his exhortation Amoris Laetitia, which has caused so much controversy precisely because it permits unrepentant public adulterers to receive the Novus Ordo version of Holy Communion. Well, only, of course, in individual cases. Wink, wink. To summarize... It really doesn't matter if someone can find 24 things Francis has said that are orthodox. The problem is with the 24,000 things he said that aren't. And yes, that's actually backed up by Catholic moral theology. You see, there's a principle that says, Bonum ex integra causa, malum ex quocumque defectu. And that means, good is from the entire cause Evil is from any defect. In other words, for a thing to be good, it has to be entirely good. For it to be defective, it is enough if it is defective in only one respect. And that's why you can't have Catholicism in degrees or elements. 
That's why someone who affirms 99% of Catholic dogma and denies only one single dogma is just as much of a non-Catholic as one who denies almost all dogmas. It will be wrong to say that someone who denies only one dogma is more Catholic than someone who denies, say, 12 dogmas. That's simply not true. I know that colloquially we sometimes talk that way, but theologically it's really inaccurate. There is no such thing as being more or less Catholic than another any more than a woman can be more or less pregnant than another. That's why Pope Benedict XV wrote in his 1914 encyclical At Beatissimi, quote, Such is the nature of Catholicism that it does not admit of more or less but must be held as a whole or as a whole rejected, unquote. That's paragraph number 24. So therefore, even if Francis were a heretic with regard to only one or two dogmas, he would still be a complete non-Catholic. And all the orthodox statements in the world that he's ever uttered wouldn't make a hill of beans worth of a difference. One drop of poison is enough to turn a healthy drink into a deadly one, just as one pin pops the entire balloon. All right, time to move on to something else here. On August 5th, the semi-traditionalist Rorate Chaley blog published an interesting account of what happened to a man who was living in his own little diocesan traditional Latin mass bubble and one Sunday had to attend a Novus Ordo mass because his car had broken down. Well, Listen to it yourself. Here's what he wrote. And I'm not going to quote the whole thing, just the most important parts. So he was on his way to his uh, regular traditional mass, but his car broke down and had to get towed. And he felt obliged to attend the new mass at his local parish church of St. Lawrence in West Haven, Connecticut. Quote, as soon as I walked through the door, I wanted to leave. I found a choir of four or five led by a lady on a piano or keyboard made to sound like one and a guitar. The choir, a collection of older men in shorts and older women, with the exception of one, was practicing 15 minutes before Mass. It is very hard to recollect oneself and get ready for the sacred mysteries while listening to mostly off-key choristers going through their rehearsal. But that was the least of it. What they were singing, the usual, made it all the worse. One strangely reminded me of a Dorothy Provine ditty from the film The Great Race. He shouldn't have, hadn't have, oughtn't have swang on me. But the genre was the same, a kind of Andrew Lloyd Webber meets the Lemon Lighters, circa 1964. There are no memorable verses, but a mirthful chorus, just like a toothpaste commercial. You'll wonder where the yellows went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. And like commercials, it's all about me, I, us. God was mentioned, even Jesus, but only insofar as either could do something for me, I, us. And there was no note of sacrifice. It was all meal, bread, and wine. The Mass began and it attempted to be a formal expression of the church's teaching on the Mass. The two celebrants and the deacon did try to make things real. Everything around them, however, bespoke informality. Informality breeds music that is different in outlook than Gregorian chant, and informality breeds an attitude of laxity by the people in the pews. 
most of whom were wearing shorts and such even though the place was air-conditioned. If it's a family meal, why worry about the way one is dressed? And it breeds a laxity in receiving the sacrament. Kneeling to receive our Lord comes from understanding who you are and who He is. Standing bespeaks a fuzzy, at best, understanding of what we are receiving and whom we are meeting in that reception. Mass, as I like to say, is not supposed to be a near occasion of sin. This had all the earmarks. For the first time in my life, I prayed for Eucharistic prayer too, and it was granite. I didn't receive. Though I went to confession the day before, I was truly anguished by what I was experiencing, a true degradation of what is supposed to be the source and summit of our lives. Some will read this and see it as being pharisaical. I'm worrying about forms and formulae. I lived through the liturgical hell that was 1965 to 70, and then the jettisoning of those forms with the missile of 1970. People began leaving the pews, the priesthood, and consecrated life the year after the changes came about. Newer changes didn't stem the tide, they increased the outflow. We changed what we did, which explained who we are. If the church could change that, it could change anything, official proclamations to the otherwise notwithstanding. Someday, someone brighter than I will figure the church's role in the West's demise. I suggest they start with the first Sunday of Advent, 1965. Yes, things led up to it, but that was the date it came apart for good. Meanwhile, the church is imploding, and for some reason, leaders aren't looking at first causes. Denying our forms, tradition, and devotions that grew up over 1,500 years caused a rupture. That rupture was prompted by reform in the liturgy. It couldn't happen until then. Yet here we are. If our churchmen were running the Ford Motor Company, that'd still be making Etzels and telling Mr. Ford it was because the people don't know what a great car it is. They only have to be catechized. I had thoughts of leaving at communion, but thought wryly, Jesus was called down here, and he can't be too happy about it. I stayed as a penance. God has a sense of humor, but my walking into St. Lawrence Church on the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time, 8th Sunday after Pentecost, was a watershed moment for me. I wondered if the Novus Ordo Mass is so far beyond redemption it can ever be reined in. It can't. The deficiencies in the right, what it doesn't say, coupled with the forced informality, makes a lethal brew. The future is the past. The Novus Ordo Mass can't survive. It must not. Only true Catholic liturgy evoking true Catholic piety and explaining true Catholic doctrine with no apologies can survive. The Novus Ordo Mass fails on all counts. Unquote. Yeah. Welcome to your own religion, sir. That is your church. That is your mass, or pseudo-mass. It is the official worship of the institution you believe to be the Immaculate Bride of Christ, who, according to traditional Catholic teaching, is spotless in her sacraments and in her sacred laws imposed on all. Oh, and in preserving the faith, too, by the way. Yeah, so it's not looking too good, is it? And, well, for those who don't believe it, here's some evidence. Pope Pius XII, encyclical Mystici Corporis, paragraph number 66, quote, 
Certainly the loving mother, the church, is spotless in the sacraments by which she gives birth to and nourishes her children. In the faith which she has always preserved inviolate, in her sacred laws imposed on all, in the evangelical counsels which she recommends, in those heavenly gifts and extraordinary graces through which, with inexhaustible fecundity, she generates hosts of martyrs, virgins, and confessors. Unquote. Pope Pius XI, encyclical Quas Primus, number 22. Quote, not least among the blessings which have resulted from the public and legitimate honor paid to the Blessed Virgin and the saints is the perfect and perpetual immunity of the Church from error and heresy. Unquote. Pope Leo XIII, Apostolic Letter Anum Ingressi. Quote, in the Catholic Church, Christianity is incarnate. It identifies itself with that perfect spiritual and, in its own order, sovereign society, which is the mystical body of Jesus Christ and which has for its visible head the Roman pontiff, successor of the Prince of the Apostles. It is the continuation of the mission of the Savior, the daughter and the heiress of his redemption. It has preached the gospel and has defended it at the price of its blood, and strong in the divine assistance and of that immortality which have been promised it, it makes no terms with error but remains faithful to the commands which it has received to carry the doctrine of Jesus Christ to the uttermost limits of the world and to the end of time and to protect it in its inviolable integrity, unquote. And lastly, Pope Pius XII once more, this time from an allocution he gave on June 2nd, 1944, in which he said, quote, Mother Church, Catholic, Roman, which has remained faithful to the Constitution received from her divine founder, which still stands firm today on the solidity of the rock on which his will erected her, possesses in the primacy of Peter and of his legitimate successors the assurance guaranteed by the divine promises of keeping and transmitting inviolate and in all its integrity through centuries and millennia to the very end of time the entire sum of truth and grace contained in the redemptive mission of Christ, unquote. That right there is sufficient proof that Francis cannot be a legitimate pope because in him there is quite manifestly no assurance of keeping and transmitting inviolate and in all its integrity the entire sum of truth and grace contained in Christ's redemptive mission. Nor does the Catholic Church, or what people think is the Catholic Church, stand firm on the solidity of Bergoglio. And this really gets to the heart of the matter about sedevacantism versus other positions. At the end of the day, everything can be boiled down to the basics. If the Vatican II Church is the Catholic Church, then everything the Church has traditionally taught about herself also applies to the Vatican II Church then everything the Church has traditionally taught about the Pope also applies to the people officially considered Popes since the death of Pius XII. In other words, John XXIII, Paul VI, John Paul I, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and now Francis. 
then all official teachings since the death of Pius Twelfth are, though perhaps not infallible, nevertheless safe for a Catholic to embrace. But of course, virtually everyone who's listening to this podcast, say to Vaconist or not, everyone knows that what emanates from the Vatican these days is doctrinally not safe, but in fact a great danger to faith and morals. So, ever since Vatican II, which closed in December of 1965, people have been trying to resolve this obvious conflict, to reconcile these apparent contradictions. The traditional teaching is that the Church cannot lead you astray in matters of faith and morals for as long as she is guided by a valid Pope. The whole point of the papacy, the whole reason why Christ instituted it, is to guarantee orthodoxy, right faith and morals for the entire church. Not just in magisterial teachings, but also in terms of liturgical rites that are doctrinally sound and pleasing to God, in valid sacraments and disciplinary laws for the whole church that are in harmony with the Catholic faith and with right reason. And just in general, the guarantee that souls can become holy, can sanctify themselves by embracing the church and using the helps she offers. That is the purpose of the church. The church is the ark of salvation, the divine embassy, as it were, on earth. So then when Vatican II happened and began a doctrinal and pastoral revolution in the church, people started trying to figure this out. They tried to find theological explanations to account for what was happening. And uh, so essentially three main currents were formed. The first one simply denied that there was a genuine break with the past. People who took that position said that the council taught nothing that conflicts with the prior teaching and that any contradictions were only apparent and that the solution was to properly understand the council and that that is the way to solve the problem of Vatican II. Well, that position is basically taken by people like uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke, uh, Dr. Robert Fastigi, Patrick Madrid, and organizations like Catholic Answers and EWTN. We like to call it the conservative Novus Ordo position, or it's sometimes referred to as the hermeneutic of continuity position. I'm sure you've heard of it. The second main current that developed was one that says that the contradictions between the council and traditional Catholic teaching are manifest and that will be that it will be foolish and not honest to deny them. But that that doesn't mean that the church has defected or anything because the council and the post-conciliar magisterium do not claim infallibility. So it's not infallible and therefore we can and must reject it. Problem solved. That is the position we call recognize and resist, because the people who hold it will recognize the papal claimants after Pius XII as valid and legitimate in the Vatican II Church as the Catholic Church, although resist all the teachings, laws, canonizations, and so forth that they consider to be at odds with the traditional pre-Vatican II teaching. Well-known organizations and people who subscribe to that position include the Society of St. Pius X, the Remnant, the Fatima Center, Tradition in Action, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, Bishop Richard Williamson, Bishop Bernard Fillet, uh, Father Chad Ripperger, uh, Roberto de Matei, Michael Davies, Christopher Ferreira, 
Taylor Marshall, John Salza, Robert Sisko, Michael Matt, Steve Skojek, and many others. That's an extremely popular position, especially right now, when a lot of people just cannot take Francis anymore. And it's, it's really a kind of best of both worlds position. Because you can reject all the modernist junk, yet at the same time, you also get to affirm that the Vatican establishment is still the Catholic Church, that the man who is acknowledged by the world to be the Pope actually is the Pope. And you can easily tell yourself that all the sacraments that you avail yourself of are valid, and so on. So it's an extremely convenient and popular position. Now, being convenient and popular by itself wouldn't make it wrong, but uh, I'm just explaining why it's so popular. And if you know how to promote it, it's quite lucrative, too. Just ask Steve Skojak. Another moniker for this position that we use here is semi-traditionalism, because it is traditional only to an extent, and certainly not with regard to the traditional doctrines of the papacy, the church, and the magisterium. And lastly, the third main current to emerge in response to the errors of Vatican II is sedevacantism, and that's the position we take here at Novus Ordo Watch, because it alone makes sense. It acknowledges the contradictions for what they are and identifies the new teachings and ideas coming out of Vatican II and the post-conciliar magisterium as errors, in some cases even heresies, the very things condemned before the council, such as religious liberty, ecumenism, and collegiality. But since a true Roman pontiff and the true Catholic Church cannot, per the promises of Christ, teach heresy or other pernicious errors detrimental to souls in the name of Christ and by his authority to the universal church, then the only possible conclusion is that the person who approved the council, and that's Giovanni Battista Montini, commonly known as Pope Paul VI, was not a valid pope. Infallibility actually has very little to do with it all. Even if the council had proclaimed nothing that falls under the umbrella of infallibility, assuming Paul VI to have been a true pope for the moment, it still could not have come from the authority of the Catholic Church because the Church cannot teach ideas that undermine sound doctrine and are a danger to souls. It would make no sense whatsoever to think that the Church could teach the most obnoxious heresies to all of her faithful with the mean little disclaimer that, hey, we never said it was infallible. I mean, how is this supposed to work? Right? The successors of the apostles united to the supreme pontiff, the vicar of Christ, meet in council and solemnly approve decrees and constitutions for the universal church, which are then generously implemented throughout the dioceses of the world. And then what, each Catholic is supposed to get on Google and figure out if he can accept it? Maybe subscribe to The Remnant and keep current on Ferreira's column at the Fatima Center? Or do we need to watch Taylor Marshall videos now and get Roberto de Matei's take on everything to ensure that the church isn't leading us astray this time? I mean, is this how Christ set up his holy Catholic church? Is that how it works? I mean, what is this if not a complete joke? Now, I know that the argument will come back that, well, you say the Vacanas have the same problem. You say Francis isn't the Pope when everyone else says he is, and that's impossible. It can't be up to each one of us 
to decide who the Pope is? Well, agreed to an extent. It's certainly not up to us to simply, you know, decide that Bergoglio isn't the Pope. Rather, it's a logically necessary conclusion because the alternative would be to conclude that the church has defected, that Jesus Christ has given us a worthless, nay, dangerous church. He tells us to cling to it, but clinging to it actually leads us to hell. That is a heresy and a blasphemy. Saying that Jorge Bergoglio isn't the Pope is neither a heresy nor a blasphemy. Now, some, like Robert Sisko, will say that it is a dogmatic fact that Francis is Pope because when he was elected, he was accepted peacefully by the whole church, and universal peaceful acceptance by the whole church is an infallible sign of the validity of someone's papacy. Well, of course, that argument assumes that the people who are considered Catholics nowadays, even though they adhere to the Vatican II religion, which Sisko himself rejects as a false religion, that those people are, in fact, Catholics and make up the Catholic Church, which is absurd. I mean, those are the people, not all of them, of course, but the vast majority of them, those are the people that never go to confession, that live together before marriage, that practice contraception, that think the death penalty is immoral, that believe in freedom of speech and religion, that don't know how to pray the rosary, that do a climate fast during Lent, that think Aquinas is a zodiac sign, for whom icons are only something you put on your computer desktop, who've traded in their spouse for a new one and then gotten an annulment, and who think that the Mass is a shared meal of bread and wine. Well, in the case of the new Mass, of course, they're actually correct, but it's by accident. So, you see what I'm saying? The vast majority of Novus Ordos, at least in the West, especially uh, North America and Europe and also in Oceania, wouldn't know Catholicism if it hit them in the face. And here I'm not even trying to assign blame. For the purposes of this discussion, it doesn't matter if they're at fault or not. The point is that these can hardly be the people who are infallibly testifying to France's legitimacy. I mean, give me a break. You might as well ask Barack Obama. So on that point alone, Robert Sisko's argument is worthless. It assumes something that isn't true, or at the very least, something disputed by Sedevacanus so he can't assume it without begging the question. And I'm referring here to his article, Dogmatic Fact, The One Doctrine That Proves Francis is Pope which uh, was published on uh, Skojek's 1 Peter 5 blog, which is really a theological comedy site, so it makes sense that they would let Cisco publish that there. But anyway, my favorite part of Cisco's article is his quote from Cardinal Louis Biot, who was an eminent theologian of the late 19th and early 20th century. Cisco quotes Cardinal Biot as follows, quote, One point must be considered absolutely incontrovertible and placed firmly above any doubt whatever. The adhesion of the universal church will be always in itself an infallible sign of the legitimacy of a determined pontiff, and therefore also of the existence of all the conditions required for legitimacy itself. 
It is not necessary to look far for the proof of this, but we find it immediately in the promise and the infallible providence of Christ. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And behold, I shall be with you all days. God can permit that at times a vacancy in the apostolic see be prolonged for a long time. He can also permit that doubt arise about the legitimacy of this or that election. He cannot, however, permit that the whole church accept as pontiff him who is not so truly and legitimately. Therefore, from the moment in which the Pope is accepted by the church and united to her as the head to the body, it is no longer permitted to raise doubts about a possible vice of election or a possible lack of any condition whatsoever necessary for legitimacy. For the aforementioned adhesion of the church heals in the root all fault in the election and proves infallibly the existence of all the required conditions." Unquote. The uh, original Latin for this is uh, found in Cardinal Bio's book Tractatus de Ecclesia Christi, Treatise on the Church of Christ, Volume 1. Now, this sounds pretty much like a slam dunk for Cisco's position, doesn't it? At least if you agree that the world's Vatican II believers are the Catholic Church. Yeah, well, except that Cisco left out a piece of that quote. Smack dab in the middle of the paragraph, he omitted one sentence and acknowledged that omission by putting ellipsis dots. And here is what that omitted sentence says. Quote, to be sure, for the church to adhere to a false pontiff would be the same thing as if she were to adhere to a false rule of faith, since the Pope is the living rule which the Church must follow in belief and always follows in fact, as will be still more clearly apparent in what is to be said later. Unquote. Yeah, that part doesn't work so well for Cisco, does it? So, let's put everything together now to see what Cardinal Bio is actually saying. He's teaching that it is impossible for the entire Catholic Church to peacefully follow a pope in matters of faith and morals who is not, in fact, the true pope. Such a man, not being the legitimate pope, would not be guided by Christ, would not have the grace of the papal office, and would never be infallible. He would lack all of the protections that Christ has given to the papacy since he would not actually possess the papacy. And so he could teach the wildest heresies, he could declare the greatest sinners to be saints, he could call a bogus ecumenical council, he could destroy the sacraments, he could establish impious and harmful laws for the whole church. Yeah, does any of this sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, I thought it did. So that portion that Cisco cut out totally undermines his argument since he himself doesn't follow Francis as the rule of faith. Now, notice that Biot does not only say that the church must always follow the Pope in matters of belief, which would still be enough to destroy Cisco's argument, he even says that the church does, in fact, always follow the true Pope, at least for as long as it's everyone peacefully submitting to his teachings. But out of all the people that Cisco considers real Catholics, no one follows Francis in matters of belief. And of course, he insists that it is forbidden to do so because of the great occasion of spiritual harm and danger that such submission presents to one's soul. So 
that doesn't exactly sound like the fulfillment of Christ's promise that the gates of hell won't prevail, does it? Hey, keep in mind the teaching of Pope Pius XI. In his encyclical Casti Canubi of 1930, he wrote, quote, A characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals by the Holy Church of God through its supreme pastor, the Roman pontiff, who is himself guided by Jesus Christ our Lord, unquote. And that's paragraph number 104 in the encyclical Casti Canubi. And no, Pius XI is not restricting this to just the once-in-a-blue-moon infallible ex-cathedra pronouncements, because right before what I just quoted in the very same paragraph, Pius XI said this, quote, It is quite foreign to everyone bearing the name of a Christian to trust his own mental powers with such pride as to agree only with those things which he can examine from their inner nature and to imagine that the church sent by God to teach and guide all nations is not conversant with present affairs and circumstances, or even that they must obey only in those matters which she has decreed by solemn definition, as though her other decisions might be presumed to be false or putting forward insufficient motive for truth and honesty." So you see that as soon as you apply the real meaning of the papacy to the man Cisco maintains is absolutely the real pope, his whole argument falls apart. Oh, he wants a pope, all right. He just doesn't want the papacy. But that's not how Catholicism works. The papacy has consequences. And listen to what Pope Pius XII teaches in Mystici Corporis. Quote, They, therefore, walk in the path of dangerous error who believe that they can accept Christ as the head of the church while not adhering loyally to his vicar on earth. Unquote. That's paragraph 41. Notice that Pope Pius here doesn't say that it is enough to accept someone as Pope. He says one must adhere loyally to him, which means if Francis is the Pope, then he is the safe rule of faith for all Catholics, because he is then specially guided by Christ our Lord. Then, Robert Sisko, go right ahead and submit to your oh-so-certain Vicar of Christ. But of course, this you won't do, because you know that the man is as heretical as heretics get. By the way, we have put up an English translation of the entire chapter of Cardinal Billot on the legitimacy of the Roman pontiff, from which Cisco quotes in his article. So you can read everything Cardinal Billot says in context. It's a Novus Ordo Watch exclusive, so you won't find it anywhere else. And uh, we've got it linked in the show notes. All right, there's so much more to say on this, and uh, Cisco's article also had uh, a few other arguments, but um, I can't cover it all here, else we'd never finish. So let's just keep in mind that the bottom line is this. If you're going to say that it is infallibly certain that someone is Pope because of peaceful acceptance by the whole church, then you must agree that this Pope cannot lead souls astray in matters of faith or morals, that he is the safe living rule of faith. Not always infallible, but always safe to follow. 
And if you don't believe that, if you hold that he must be resisted, then you cannot use universal peaceful acceptance as an argument that infallibly proves his validity. I think it's time we took a break. Hey, why don't you refill your coffee and uh, we'll be right back. It's not just a podcast. It's, it's a, a Trapcast. Trapcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming? One that addresses not only the current crisis in the church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member-supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. Looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast. are listening to Tratcast 25, brought to you by Novos Ordo Watch, where we bring you the truth about the Vatican II Church. Otherwise, we'd be Taylor Marshall. Speaking of which, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. Earlier this year, uh, as I'm sure most of you know, Taylor Marshall released a book entitled Infiltration, The Plot to Destroy the Church from Within. It was published by Sophia Institute Press, and uh, it's so sad, but people are going nuts over this. They think it's so wonderful, when in fact it's quite overrated. Um, for right now, I only want to talk about this briefly, so you don't think we're ignoring such a rather significant book release, but... I haven't finished reading it yet, and I don't want to critique its contents until I'm done. So I'm biting my tongue here because I'm really itching to say quite a few things about it. But uh, we'll have a feature article on the Novel Sorta Watch website about this book. And we will also review it in the next Tratcast. And we may actually make it a special edition Tratcast just on that topic. Now, I want to make clear that I'm not into slamming every book on the crisis in the church that isn't Sede Vacantes just because it's not Sede Vacantes. I wouldn't do that, and that's not what's happening here. Uh, there are non-Sede Vacantes books out there that are of great value in other ways. For example, in, in critiquing Vatican II or in showing the errors of the new theology or the new mass. Uh, but what we see with infiltration is just bizarre because the author, the former Anglican cleric Taylor Marshall, has a PhD in philosophy and yet his writing doesn't reflect that at all. 
Um, that's all I'm going to say here for now, but you can look forward to some substantial critiques coming up on the blog and in a future podcast. Okay, before we continue, I'd like to make uh, one quick appeal to everyone's conscience. If you enjoy the content you find on Novus Ordo Watch, if you find it helpful, if you or someone you love benefits from it, please help support it. I know that this year content has been not quite as copious and appearing as quickly as is standard, but that's because we've had a bunch of legal issues to comply with, and that's been rather time-consuming. And yes, that has to do with the many missing images you may see on a number of pages. Uh, we're working on getting all of those fixed, but it's going to take some time still, and I'm hoping uh, not to have to have another special fundraiser because that would just be so time-consuming again, and I'd really like to spend my time researching and writing rather than fundraising, which uh, includes a lot of administrative tasks. In any case, you can support this podcast and Novus Ordo Watch as a whole by making a donation at novusordowatch.org/donate where you have the option of donating either online, by credit card, bank withdrawal, or PayPal, or by check or money order using good old snail mail. That's novosordowatch.org slash donate. And of course, we have a link to that also in the show notes. And the best part, in the United States, donations are tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. All right, enough of this. Let's move on to... Oh, yeah. You may be aware that Dr. Peter Hoynowski, who is an American philosopher in Idaho, has founded the organization Sister Lucy Truth with the goal of determining with certitude whether or not the woman the Vatican has paraded around as Sister Lucy of Fatima since 1959 is, in fact, that Sister Lucy to whom Our Lady appeared at Fatima in 1917, together with uh, the other two children. The question is quite relevant when you look at photos of the woman known to be Sister Lucy all the way up into the 1940s, and then contrast those images with pictures of Sister Lucy in the 1960s and later. On the face of it, they just don't look like the same woman. But of course, that's not evidence, that's just a suspicion. So what Hoynowski did is he wanted to put the matter to rest one way or another, and so he raised funds and commissioned numerous scientists and other professionals to analyze and examine whatever data is available. And so now we have facial analysis, dental analysis, handwriting analysis, forensic art, uh, professional opinions from plastic surgeons, and so on. All of the evidence that has been collected so far, with the official scientific reports and professional assessments, all of that has been posted at a website at sisterlucyimposter.org. And that's sister spelled out and imposter with an E-R ending, sisterlucyimposter.org. So far, the verdicts of all the reports have been unanimous. The two women in question are not the same person. In other words, the woman known as Sister Lucy of Fatima, seen in photographs since the 1960s, is not, in fact, Sister Lucy of Fatima. That, at least, is what the evidence says that has been gathered so far. And if anyone has evidence to the contrary, that's fine, too. Then contact Sister Lucy Truth and submit that evidence. The idea isn't to promote one particular theory, but to 
settle the question using the best technology available today. So we want to go by evidence, not by speculation, not by hypotheses, theories, or whatever. Now, the repercussions of this are tremendous. It means that anything purportedly coming from Sister Lucy after basically Pope Pius XII probably didn't come from her, or at least it's highly doubtful that it did. Certainly, the woman who appeared in public as Sister Lucy was not her, but an imposter, according to the evidence collected. What happened to the real Sister Lucy? Well, that's a question that will be investigated separately. Interestingly enough, and tragically enough, none of the well-known Recognize and Resist organizations have shown any interest whatsoever in this investigation or the results. And here I mean the Fatima Center, the Remnant, Catholic Family News, the Society of St. Pius X, and so forth. Apparently, they don't care. And yet, this is an issue that has nothing to do with Sedevacantism or theology at all. It's only about whether or not the Vatican used a woman to impersonate Sister Lucy. And surely, that is kind of a big deal, wouldn't you say? Well, on May 14th of this year, Hynowski posted on his Radtratomist blog that the term diabolical disorientation now has to be discarded because it actually came not from the real Sister Lucy, but from the imposter. That, of course, is very unwelcome news for the organizations I just named since they've basically built a whole theology, a theology of resistance on that foundation of diabolical disorientation, a term introduced by the supposed Sister Lucy in the 1960s. Diabolical disorientation is what they always bring up when their theology runs into contradiction with the traditional doctrine. So, for example, they can say that the ideas put forth by an ecumenical council are junk because... Diabolical disorientation. They can say that the saints canonized by a true pope may in fact not be saints at all because... Diabolical disorientation. They can say that the new mass of Paul VI is a defective rite of mass, perhaps even invalid, because... Diabolical disorientation. And they can say that the pope and with him the entire church can adhere to a new and false religion because... You guessed it. Diabolical disorientation. Yeah, come to think of it, maybe I understand now why they'd rather not bother with that Sister Lucy imposter thing. Okay, next. If you thought that the synods on the family in 2014 and 15 were really bad, and admit it, you did think that, well, then put your seatbelt on because you ain't seen nothing yet. In October of this year, there's going to be the Amazon Synod in the Vatican. No, Jeff Bezos won't be attending. It's not that Amazon. Okay, We're talking about the Pan-Amazon region in South America. The Vatican has released a working document that they'll be using for their discussions that is so bad that even some Novos Ordo Cardinals, specifically uh, Muller, uh, Braunmuller, and Burke, are calling it heresy, even apostasy. That document, that, that working document for the Amazon Senate, makes Amoris Laetitia look like sacred scripture by comparison. Arate Chaley is on record saying that it doesn't even rise to the level of toilet paper. Though I'm not going to say that because I don't see any reason to insult toilet paper like that. Well, excuse me, but I mean, at least toilet paper doesn't contain heresy. All right. Well, anyway, let me quote you some highlights from the working document so you can see for yourself what kind of a theological freak show this is going to be. These are all quotes. 
The cry of the Amazon speaks to us of struggles against those who want to destroy the life as conceived integrally. In the Amazon, life is inserted into, linked with, and integrated in territory. Territory is a theological place where faith is lived and also a particular source of God's revelation. Epiphanic places where the reserve of life and wisdom for the planet is manifest, a life and wisdom that speaks of God. In the Amazon, the caresses of God become manifest and become incarnate in history. Women must assume a leadership role within the church. Listening to the voice of the Spirit in the cry of the Amazon peoples and in the magisterium of Pope Francis requires a process of pastoral and missionary conversion. To this end, it is suggested to discard rigid positions that do not take sufficient account of the concrete life of people and the pastoral reality in order instead to meet the real needs of indigenous peoples and cultures. It is necessary to grasp what the Spirit of the Lord has taught these peoples throughout the centuries. Faith in the God-Father-Mother-Creator, communion and harmony with the earth, solidarity with one's companions, striving for good living, the wisdom of civilizations going back thousands of years that the elderly possess and which influences health, life together, education, cultivation of the land, the living relationship with nature and Mother Earth, the capacities of resistance and resiliency of women in particular, rites and religious expressions, relationships with ancestors, the contemplative attitude, the sense of gratuity, celebration, and festivity, and the sacred meaning of the territory. A process of discernment is needed regarding the rites, symbols, and styles of celebration of indigenous cultures in contact with nature, which need to be integrated into liturgical and sacramental rituals. It is necessary to be attentive to grasp the true meaning of symbols that transcends the merely aesthetic and folkloric, specifically in Christian initiation and marriage. It is suggested that the celebrations should be festive, with their own music and dances, using indigenous languages and clothing, in communion with nature and with the community. A liturgy that responds to their own culture so as to be the source and summit of their Christian life and linked to their struggles and sufferings and joys. Encourage the men and women religious who come from abroad to be willing to share the local life with their hearts, heads, and hands in order to unlearn models, recipes, schemes, and preset structures, and to learn the languages, cultures, traditions of wisdom, cosmologies, and mythologies of the indigenous peoples. That synod is going to be an utter madhouse. But don't worry, Francis will be there, keeping the gates of hell from prevailing. Hey look, for the semi-trats, it'll just be one more thing to resist. Right? On Twitter, you're already seeing people say things like, well, if at the Amazon Senate they, they allow women's ordination, or if they get rid of clerical celibacy, then I'm going to leave. Then I'm going to be a site of a contest. And to those people, I say, don't kid yourselves. 
you're not going to leave the Vatican II Church then either. And why should you? If Amoris Laetitia and the acceptance of sin as partial virtue wasn't enough to make you take action, then nothing else will either. Because anything else is just going to be a different degree of what is essentially the same thing, heresy. So why should you not convert when there's this blatant heresy in Amoris Laetitia, but then definitely convert when there's some other blatant heresy in whatever post-synodal exhortation Francis is going to publish after the Amazon Synod? So don't say there's just this one more thing that you need, that one more thing, and if that happens, well, then you're going to become a sedeva contest. No, you're not. Because what needs to happen to trigger that conversion has long happened, and you resisted it. Now, there's always hope that you'll still accept God's grace in the future and act on it, but you can do that now. You don't have to wait for the Amazon Synod. Now, speaking of resistance and switching gears here, the state of recognize and resist theology has recently been beautifully on display at the 1 Peter 5 website, where the left hand apparently doesn't know what the right hand is publishing. On July 24th, contributor David Mitchell published a post entitled, There is no salvation outside the Catholic Church. So far, so good. That's a dogma, after all. And even though they're mistaken about the Vatican II Church being the Catholic Church, nevertheless, the principle holds. No one can be saved outside the Catholic Church. Now, two days later, at 1 Peter 5, Steve Skojak posts an article entitled The Novus Ordo Paradigm, What It Is and Why It Matters. And that post includes the following sentence, quote, Novus Ordoism and Catholicism are not the same religion, unquote. Which is true, of course. It's just too bad that the religion taught and practiced in the Vatican and throughout the institution he believes to be the Catholic Church outside of which there is no salvation is the Novus Ordo religion. But if the Novus Ordo religion is not Catholicism, then how can there be no salvation outside the institution that has replaced Catholicism with Novus Ordoism? Either there's no salvation outside the Catholic Church, and therefore Catholicism, or there's no salvation outside the Novus Ordo Church, and therefore Novus Ordoism. It can't be both, since, let me quote again, Novus Ordoism and Catholicism are not the same religion. But to make it even worse, on July 29th, a third contributor at 1 Peter 5, Nishant Xavier, published the essay The Filioque, A Call to the Separated East to Come Home. And so, as the title suggests, the author is beckoning the Eastern Orthodox to convert to what he calls the Catholic Church. But of course, the institution he has in mind is the Vatican II Church, which preaches Novus Ordoism, which we know from Steve Skojek isn't Catholicism. So, as you can see, this is a total mess. And the reason it's a mess is that they're trying to reconcile two fundamentally irreconcilable things. Namely, that the legitimate Roman Catholic hierarchy under the Pope can defect to a false religion and still be the legitimate Catholic hierarchy invested with the authority of Christ. They believe in a church that is the Catholic Church, but doesn't adhere to Catholicism. They believe that the Catholic Church, the Immaculate Bride of Christ, can become unfaithful to her divine spouse. They believe in a non-Catholic Pope. And that is what throws a monkey wrench into it all.
Now, it's not like we say the Vakanas have all the answers, but at the very least, we acknowledge that what contradicts the Catholic faith cannot be true, and we act accordingly and embrace the necessary consequences. That leaves some questions unanswered, and it raises some new ones, that's very true, but it doesn't involve us in contradiction. Mystery is possible. Contradictions are not. You know, often people will say that Sedevacantism is a dead end, but that's not true. It's an open end, an end that leaves room for faith and for divine providence and doesn't try to have everything figured out first before we accept it. The worst thing we can do is accept a manifestly false solution just so we can say we have a solution. That's madness. That is a dead end. The semi-traditionalist recognize and resist position, that is a dead end. It's a dead end because it does away with the traditional teaching on the magisterium, on the papacy, and on the church, just so it can have a pope. A pope whose papacy is essentially meaningless. For the semi-trads, Francis is, at best, a figurehead with a primacy of honor, and they're not even quite so sure about the honor part. I've said it many times before, and I'll say it again. You cannot keep the faith by denying the faith. If you have to deny Catholic teaching in order to maintain that Francis is Pope, then you have nothing. Now, of course, the Semitrats challenge Sedevacanus on the living magisterium, right? Where is your Pope? Where is your magisterium? Where is your teaching church? And to that, I'm just going to have to say, I don't know. I don't know what happened to the Catholic magisterium. I don't know where the teaching church is. But I do know that it's not in the Vatican. I do know that it's not the Vatican II church, because that's a den of heretics and apostates, with the worst of them at the top. Now, I'm talking about heretics and apostates, not just, you know, corrupt people. I'm not just talking about uh, sinners, like evil men. That would be entirely possible in the Catholic Church. You can have evil cardinals and evil popes. But here we're talking about non-Catholics. So, I do know that the Vatican II Church is not the Immaculate Bride of Christ because it is a most dangerous monster from which we have to protect ourselves so we don't end up in hell by unwittingly adhering to its teachings. And that's essentially admitted by the Semitrads, because that's the precise reason why they resist in the first place. They resist the Vatican II Church because it's obvious that it's a danger to souls. So much so that, objectively speaking, there is no salvation inside of it. And so that's the very opposite of the Catholic Church, outside of which there is no salvation. Now, you've got to keep in mind that a magisterium and a teaching church is worthless if what it teaches is not the unadulterated Roman Catholic faith. Then you don't have the visible teaching church. Then you have nothing. A church whose teaching must be resisted is not the church of Jesus Christ. Remember what our Lord said about those he sent with his authority. Quote, he that heareth you heareth me, unquote. That's Luke 10, 16. And the church is referred to in the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy as the pillar and ground of the truth. And you can read that in chapter 3, verse 15. Now, that's hardly an apt description of the Vatican II church, is it? Clearly, the answer, I don't know, is not very satisfying. 
But not knowing something is still better than thinking to know something that isn't so. I don't know is an acceptable answer for individuals in these difficult times, but contradictions are never an acceptable answer. God doesn't demand us to have all the answers, to have it all figured out. But he does demand us to have faith in his word, to trust his promises. And as St. John the Baptist said in Luke 3, verse 8, God can turn stones into children of Abraham. So don't doubt the power of God. Don't doubt that the church will be restored precisely at the time and in the manner that God has determined from all eternity. Remember that having faith means firmly accepting what God has revealed, not because you agree with it or you find it convincing or you think it's true, but because he who cannot lie or be mistaken has revealed it. That's what it means to believe, to have divine faith. You accept what God has said on his authority, and aided by grace, of course. So, to sum up, we have to distinguish very strictly between what is impossible and what is merely improbable or otherwise hard to fathom. It's possible to have no pope, and it's possible not to know where the living magisterium is today and what the heck has happened to the church exactly since Pius XII died. But it's not possible that the true Catholic Church should teach anything other than Catholicism. It's not possible that the sovereign pontiff should no longer be the safe living rule of faith. It's not possible that the Ark of Salvation should suddenly turn into a most dangerous institution that poisons souls with all kinds of heresies, errors, blasphemies, sacrileges, and impieties. It is not possible that you should cling to the true Catholic Church and be led astray by her. If these things were possible, then, and only then, would the gates of hell have prevailed. And so we're said of our contest precisely because we believe with all our hearts that the gates of hell cannot prevail against God's holy Catholic Church. And with that, we'll end this podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word and God bless you.